In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Next year is the 75th anniversary of the creation of a document that I have a hard time imagining would ever be formulated today. I don't think it would happen. I don't think it could happen, given the atmosphere we're in. And yet, in the moment in which it was written, they could not not do anything, to use a double negative. It's 1948. It's in the wake of World War II. The low estimate of the number of people that were killed, annihilated or otherwise, 40 million people. The high end is close to 60 million. Not just in war, but in extermination or a a siege that led to the starvation of millions if you're in Leningrad. In the wake of that, if you're a world that is reeling from that, those multiple years of devastation, you have to ask yourself, is there anything we can do to prevent something that, like that happening again? And so in 1948, a number of people from the United Nations, prominently influenced by a Lebanese Christian philosopher and author by the name of Dr. Charles Habib Malik, helped to draft a document that came to be known as the United Nations Declarations of Human Rights. And there's the document. And Eleanor Roosevelt was probably the one figure that most touted it to bring a lot deal of credibility to its nature. But it was an attempt to find some sort of consensus among people of goodwill that would explain and express the idea that humans had a value, that there was a worth to them that had been lost clearly in the degradation and extermination of so many millions over the last several years, and it was an attempt to try to come to a consensus about what is true of all of us that would lead us to have a certain responsibility to each one of us. That's what the document was for. And you understand why they would have done that in the wake of that kind of carnage. A document like that has as much relevance today as it did in 1948. And that's in part why we're going through a series week by week in the Ten Commandments. And we are now in the second half of those commandments, verses uh, commandments 6 through 10, which we might affectionately know as the, the no-no commandments. The no, 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 like that. When you're a parent, you get that. No, 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 no. You have to say it five times. So there are five remaining commandments, and each of them are like, no, no, right? Not because God likes to be contrarian and uh, uh, uh. It's because sometimes if you want to find life, you got to know where you got to draw a line. And the sixth commandment is all about you shall not murder, which simplicity an expression of an understanding about what is our responsibility to our common human. And look, um, yeah, it's timely to talk about the Sixth Commandment in, in an atmosphere of war and crime and mass killing and incarceration and injustice and in talking about life that is born or unborn. All of that has resonance and relevance But I'm going to read the room in the same way that I think Jesus read the room when he took this commandment and did his own short little homily on it. Because inasmuch as all of those issues that I've just spoken of have absolute relevance for all of our lives, 
there is something that has more relevance for every one of us in this room, and it has everything to do with what I said at the beginning of the service about our capacity for seething against people we don't agree with. We want to talk about a whole complex of things that relate to a responsibility to one another in which we're asking this question, what is a life worth? And the way we're going to do that is listen both to this commandment and Jesus riffing on this commandment in the Sermon on the Mount and consider this whole topic under three heads. One, the potency of our words. Two, the dignity of humanity. And three, the priority of reconciliation. The potency of our words, the dignity of humanity, the priority of reconciliation. What's a life worth? We're going to try to answer that question as we consider those three ideas from these texts. So, I wonder if you might stand. We're in Deuteronomy first, and then Matthew chapter 5. Deuteronomy 5, verse 17. You shall not murder. And then, from Matthew chapter 5. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you won't get out till you've paid the last penny. This is the definitive word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can, you can have a seat. Lo ratzach. That's the Hebrew word there for you shall not murder. And it is speaking of not only a premeditated killing, it's also talking about a kind of negligence that we might bring to life that it leads to their destruction. So we're talking about both murder and manslaughter that is in view in the passage. But when we come to that elaboration of that passage in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. You hear, we'll, you'll hear Jesus say, as we did when we went through the Sermon on the Mount a few years ago, he'll say, you've heard that it was said, but I say. And, it, and at first glance, you might think that Jesus is saying, yeah, that was old, but now I've got the real story. When in truth, what Jesus is out to do to say, you've heard that, now let me deepen your understanding of what it means. Let's, let's push deeper into the wardrobe there and, and find out what is the what is the essence of what you're hearing there in the sixth commandment? And so, over time, though you might think he's trying to overturn it, he's actually out there to help us understand what is behind that commandment. And in the sixth commandment, we're seeing that murder, while it is an act of a will, before it is ever an act of will, it begins in the mind. And Jesus is out to show us that connection 
that inextricable bond between our words and our actions. And so you hear there in verse 21, and I don't remember if I have a slide for it, yeah. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. What is the issue at point? That murder and anger can be expressed in a verbal way. That he's not coming against anger in itself. Jesus, in a number of occasions, you see him angry when he's cleansing the temple. He's not doing it with a smile on his face. When he looks at the way the Pharisees are looking at a prostitute, condemning her in the moment to her face, he is not doing so with an indifferent kind of tone. He is angry about the way they are seeing things. There's an English proverb that goes like this. He is a fool who cannot be angry, but he's a wise who will not remain so. Jesus is talking about an anger that is unattended. An anger that we just sort of run rampant, that it is like a weed we leave unattended that ends up choking the garden we're in. It's like a dangerous dog that we let off its chain. Everybody's got anger. But when that anger is unaccounted for, when it is unattended, it can do great damage. Because it has to go somewhere. And Jesus talks about two places in which it can go. Anger can go in such a way that you begin to think of somebody else and to condemn them for their abilities. That word there for insult is to characterize their very capacities as being almost subhuman. So beneath you that you can begin to think of them as something just so inferior to your own. Anger can go there. Or anger can go in the direction where you start to call out somebody's moral character. When he says the worst of the word fool, that's, that's not just talking about their intellectual capacities. It's talking about their ability to even think about what is good and what is true and what is beautiful. And in that moment, your anger for where they are can call them out in their entirety. And to degrade them and to disparage them for any of their moral fiber. Jesus is talking about an anger that it's expressed, but that it's unattended, and he is arguing that that anger unattended is as dangerous as murder. That before any physical act is taken, it begins in the mind. And next week, we're going to talk about the seventh commandment, which is about adultery. So parents... I'm going to leave you to your discretion. We will try to address the fact that it's going to be tender ears in the room, but we also have to talk about adultery. But there's a, an author that you may have heard of named Malcolm Gladwell who wrote a book 20 years ago called Blink, in which he talks about a, a marriage therapist named John Gottman who, who had developed the capacity to listen to a marriage couple in crisis in the way they speak of and to each other and without ever having sat in the same room with a couple, he could listen to just 15 minutes of their dialogue and be able to predict with a high, uh, a, a high uh, quality of, of predictability um, whether or not they would divorce within a certain amount of time. And, and Malcolm Gladwell listened to him talk about that, and he goes, how do you do that? Like, is this some sort of magic trick? And he goes, no, I'm just listening for one thing. 
contempt. Every relationship gets in arguments. Every marriage gets in arguments. And sometimes those arguments are heated. But you can tell the difference between an argument over an issue and an argument that leads to thinking of the other person as inferior to yourself, as almost not human. That's contempt. And that's a murderous sort of temperament that begins to well up in a person. And he could say, where that exists and is allowed to run rampant, you've set yourself up for doom. In that way, there is a potency to our words that we're all having to grapple with here. Both the commandment implicitly and Jesus more explicitly is saying, do you understand the potency of your words? And in some ways, like this is not new to you. But just for the sake of being comprehensive, there's, there's three ways in which that potency needs to be accounted for. It is obvious that our words have potency in the objects to whom they are directed. Kids, let me tell you a statistical story that may or not be borne out by the research later on. But Jonathan Haidt, dude up in New York, he started to do a, an analysis of when kids' reporting of depression really started to take off. And he, he noticed that when that incidence and reporting of depression really started to take off, it just happened to correlate with when smartphones came on the scene. That the more and more we got online and decided that we were going to exercise all of our interactions with one another from the safe distance of my phone, we would come up with all sorts of justifications for saying some of the most hateful things imaginable. Now, whether or not that's just correlation or causation, time will tell. But at least should be sobering to us all. That just by the words that we say into a phone can have the kind of impact on another that leads to a self-loathing, a self-hatred about whatever it might be. Yes, words have potency. You ever thought about why? Why the Lord says to us, hey, don't just read this and then close this. Read this and then sit with this and meditate upon it. Why does he say, um, I will meditate upon your law day and night. It will not depart from me day or night. Why does he say meditate on it? Because he knows it is one thing to read it and then walk away. It is another thing to read it and really sit with it because then becomes not just something that informs us but forms us. The attention that we give to it has an effect on us. That's its intention. So why is it that we learn to hate ourselves so much by what people say? Because we see it and think about it every day. That's the impact that social media is having because our words are potent. Obviously, words have potency in the direction to whom they are directed. There's another place, though, that words have potency. Not just in who you say it to, but who's saying it to begin with. If you think the words that you choose and the words that you say have no effect on yourself, you are wrong. Martin Luther King Jr. knew a few things about being hated, both in words or in actions. And he said this. He said, hate is always tragic. It is as injurious to the hater as it is to the hated. It distorts the personality. It scars the soul. And every time I see it, I say to myself, hate is too great a burden to bear. And there was someone who you could understand why he might want to hate people that hated him. 
And yet he knew that if he chose to go down that road, that it might have a nice effect that kind of juiced him for a while about being able to retaliate with what he had, but he knew what it would do to himself. Because there's a potency not only to the object of our words, but to we who utter them. And if we do not account for that, we do not understand their, pain, their, their potency. When we think in that direction, when we begin to, to reduce people just to the things that we are mad about them for, when we, when we try to flatten them into just the, the position that they embody or speak, you know what that is? Not only is it a potent thing that distorts us, it's exhausting. When you refuse to take into account the fullness of somebody, no matter how much you vehemently disagree with where they come from, that takes effort on your part. And that is part of the potency of your words. It's a, it's a, it's a discovery among uh, those who treat people who suffer from PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, which is most commonly associated with those who go through war. They come back and they are forever changed because of what happened to them there. And it's interesting to hear some psychiatrists speak of how they have come to help somebody suffering through that heal. And one way they seek their healing is that this is what's happened in the course of war. In the course of trying to live in war, what they've had to do to their enemy is to, is to flatten them, to dehumanize them. Because that's the only thing that can kind of help you justify what you do in the course of war. And then you come home and you're forever changed by that. And psychiatrists have discovered that the only way or one prominent way in which soldiers who suffer from PTSD can begin to heal is that they have to learn how to rehumanize their enemy. Because before that time, they just thought of their enemy as vermin, as subhuman. And somehow in thinking of their enemy as subhuman, they're like, there's no honor even in the, in the prosecution of something that you thought was virtuous. The only way to heal is to begin to think of that enemy as somebody that was just like them, that lived for a different cause. And that was the source of their healing. Walter Wink was a theologian of the last century, had a lot to say. He said this, We want desperately to believe that our forcible retaliation to evil is like a projectile fired from a gun that will drop evil in its tracks. But in fact, it's more like a ball thrown by a pitcher that will, as likely as not, come back at us or over the fence. The potency of our words is not only where they land, but the way they rebound. And we don't usually think about that at the time that we let that murderous kind of anger become expressed in our words and our actions. There's one more element of how it's potent, our words, that is. Of what it does to those we say it to, of what it does to us who say it, do you know who else is provoked? Um, the Lord. You don't live in a vacuum. You don't live under yourself. Uh, you don't live without everything that we say or do being noticed. And in Psalm 101, you hear this word said, whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. Our words have potency in what they do to subject and object, but also in how they provoke the one who said, this is my 
people. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? What's a life worth? You can't answer that question until you understand the potency of our words that are too often indistinguishable from murderous acts. But there's something still in the background of even saying that that we have to grapple with. Why are they potent? That comes down to thinking about the identity of those to whom we address them and who we are as those who speak. And so I want to talk about something that the Universal Declaration of Human Rights tried to argue through, from cover to cover of its statement back in 1948. They named and expressed and explained an idea that you and I take for granted, but was the one thing that they hoped would hold every human accountable to every other human in some way, and that was the word dignity. Dignity. Dignity is that worth that any person has that cannot be taken from them. And the ironic thing about the United Nations Declaration on Human Rights is that it used dignity as the basis for all of our responsibility, but it, and it defined it, but it never took the time to explain why does anybody have dignity? Who said you have dignity? Who said you have worth? Just because we want to believe that so we don't end up with more exterminating wars? Is that it? I, that's, an, that's an incentive in its own right, but, but, but on what basis can you really believe that you have dignity? And, and you and I, we think, well, duh, of course we have dignity. What, isn't this obvious? And I would just say to you, no, it's not obvious to most people. It is not a given that most people subscribe to. Uh, Charles Darwin was very honest about saying when it comes to this, he said this, um, a man who has no assured and ever-present belief in the existence of a personal God or a future existence with retribution and reward can have for his rule of life, as far as I can see, only to follow those impulses and instincts which are the strongest or which seem to him the best ones. Let me explain what he's saying. If you don't think there is anything bigger than you to which all of us are accountable, if you don't think that there is any moral grid, anything that's transcendent, there's a big word, SAT, PSAT folk, that big word that says there is something to which we are all responsible to, some bigger, higher power or idea. If you don't think that exists, then the only thing that really governs anything that you might do is just whatever your strongest desires and wants are. Uh, Dostoevsky put it most famously, most succinctly in The Brothers Karamazov, if there is no God, then everything is permissible. I may not like what you choose to do, but I can't tell you why it's wrong. If we have no dignity, if there is nothing larger than us that says you have worth, having nothing to do with anything but the fact that you are, then you know what? Everything is fair game including using all sorts of angry words that I might think are justified in the moment. The sixth commandment, and Jesus' teaching on that sixth commandment, implicitly is saying this, you have dignity not because of your name, not because of your background, not because of your W-2, not because of where you live, not because of what you've done or haven't done. None of those things 
that all of us look at in order to size one another up, none of that matters. The only thing that does is this. You were made in the image of God. Your dignity comes from that. It's got nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with what was done for you by him. And until you and I grapple with that truth, the potency of our words will only go, understanding the potency of our words will only go so far. We will feel a moral feeling, but we won't have a real reason for following the feeling. But if I tell you, you are made in the image of God, and therefore you have an value that has nothing to do with everything else, even the things that I might despise about where you come from, or what you believe, it's the only thing that will keep me honest in my treatment of you. Um, Ulysses S. Grant, at the conclusion of the Civil War, wrote in his memoir, he said, um, of that day in which uh, the South um, surrendered, he says, I felt like anything rather than rejoicing at the downfall of a foe who had fought so long and valiantly and suffered so much for a cause, though that cause was, I believe, one of the worst for which a people ever fought and one for which there was the least excuse. The Confederates were now our prisoners, but they were also our countrymen and we did not want to exult over their downfall. That's uh, an otherworldly, countercultural way of thinking, but it's, it's not unique to Ulysses S. Grant. John Calvin, man is both in the image of God and our flesh. Therefore, if we would not violate the image of God, we must hold the person of man sacred. If we would not divest ourselves of humanity, we must cherish our own flesh. He's talking about dignity. And it's a countercultural concept. And if you think there is not an intellectual undercurrent in much of thinking in many public places, if you think the idea that dignity doesn't exist and that that's not finding its way into all sorts of places, get ready. Our words have potency, and the reason we consider them to be potent is because we believe that those to whom they are directed and whom they are uttered by have dignity. So, given our potency and given the dignity that comes to us, um, where does that lead us? The third and final answer to the question, what's life worth, that comes down to a certain priority we have to grasp. And the rest of Jesus' riffing on the sixth commandment takes up that very question. And the question is, what happens when you have let the words fly and you broke something because of those words? What do you do then? Well, maybe they'll forget. Or maybe we'll just move on. What do you do now? Jesus Jesus is saying that you have to act urgently and you have to act resolutely. You don't just sort of wait for the bad aroma in the room to dissipate. There is something that has to be done, and that's why Jesus comes up with two images to speak about why two things depend upon that kind of urgency, the, the peace and purity of the church and our greater witness to the world. When it comes to the peace and purity, he, he talks about, one, um, if you're bringing your sacrifice and trying to honor the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, that's fantastic. 
and you should, and that's faithful. But if in that moment you come to bring your offering of whatever sort, but you have offended and wronged a brother or a sister or a child by what you've said or what you've done, Jesus is saying, stop it. Stop, drop, roll out of there and attend to the one that you've offended because it matters. Worship matters, but worship and reconciling with another whom you've offended, those are inextricably bound. And what God has brought together, let no man separate. Because the peace and purity of the church depends on it. Our worship is, is, is ideally to be with one voice, but if we are fractured and estranged with one another, then something is compromised in our worship. There's a priority to our reconciliation because the peace and purity of the church depend on it. But in the same right, the whole watching world, our witness to it, hangs in the balance. And that's why he talks about another image. Hey, if you have not tried to reconcile with your accuser for the thing that you've done wrong as quickly as possible, if you have just sort of let it lie and not taken responsibility for where you've gone to the point where they've got to, you know, call in everything to sort of get you to own up and to be accountable for what you've done, the rest of the world is looking on going, wow, some Jesus you have there where you can't even be honest with where you were wrong. The priority of reconciliation and how we handle those moments in which we have deeply offended or, or defrauded another, it's not just about you and them, though that's where it's an issue there. It's about what does the rest of the world see? And until we reckon with that, we don't understand the priority of reconciliation. What he asks makes sense. You and I can maybe implicitly see the wisdom in it, but here's, here's the thing. What he asks sounds very difficult, almost impossible, to the point which we like, that must be for the super saints. Thanks. Let them do it. I'll just watch. But here's, here's the point, friends. What he asks of us in having the same priority of reconciliation that he does, what he asks depends on what he first does for us. The priority that he asks from us, we take our cues from him first. Because he was hated and he was harassed and murderous words were said to him right on the cusp of murderous actions taken against him. And why did he suffer all of the abuse and eventually die at the hands of angry and murderous men? To reconfirm your worth to the Lord. That you had forgotten. That he had come to remind you of. Of a dignity that you possess simply because you're made in the image of God. That's one reason. The other reason is this. That you might know that your words have power. And that everybody else in this world has dignity. And that he's calling upon us to reconcile because he has come to reconcile us to the Lord. For everything that we have done or for everything that is within us that might corrupt us. And that is true of every single person in this room and every single person on the earth. Yehiel Denur was a survival, survivor of the Holocaust. And he had first-hand encounters with Adolf Eichmann, one of the architects of the Great Solution, the mass extermination of millions of Jews. 
And he was one of those that testified at the Nuremberg trials in 1948. And he testified against Eichmann, with Eichmann in the room, saying what he saw, saying what he heard. Years later, Yehil Dinur does an interview with Mike Wallace on 60 Minutes. And Mike Wallace asks him, when you were in that room giving that testimony, what did you feel? Anger, hatred, revenge, what did you feel? And, and Dinur says this, um, all at once I realized Eichmann was not the godlike army officer who had sent so many to their deaths. This Eichmann was an ordinary man. I was afraid about myself. I saw that I am capable to do this. I am exactly like he. Eichmann is in all of us. None of you have or will ever come close to the kind of horror that somebody like Adolf Eichmann participated in and executed. But what exists in that heart exists in some form in every heart. And Jesus is out to reconcile us to the Lord that that which is evil and awkward and ugly in us might be renewed and redeemed. And he does that first in himself for us. And when you believe the gospel, that Jesus has done that on our behalf, then that cuts across the two things that will most seduce us into letting our angry thoughts become murderous words, if not worse. See, what leads me to think so poorly of you or you of me, in a sense, is pride. I can be so deeply angered by something that you think, I'm speaking hypothetically here, we can be so deeply angered by something that somebody else thinks and we're so angered by that and we begin to, again, hold them in a, with a kind of contempt that we just can't get past. Well, what does the gospel do? It, it humbles us. It says, you may be appropriately scandalized by where somebody is coming from and they would be appropriately called out for what they hold to and what they've done. But when it comes to hatred, you have forgotten yourself. And the gospel humbles us. The only other place where we've been seduced to act with those kind of murderous thoughts is when we're afraid. When you're threatened, when you're cut to the core, yours and my impulse is to want to retaliate. And you will think and say to yourself, unless I, retake, unless I retaliate, I will be ruined. But what the gospel does is console us and say, look, if everybody else hates you, I know one who loves you desperately. And that is the one for whom, the one who died for you. And that changes our calculation in how we respond. Maya Angelou, she died several years ago, she was sexually assaulted at the age of eight and didn't talk about it for five years. She wrote a poem, uh, I think some of you know it, it's called Pulse of the Morning, in which she says, Do not be wedded forever to fear, yoked eternally to brutishness. You may shoot me with your words, you may cut me with your eyes, you may kill me with your hatefulness, but still, like air, I will rise. What is our hope of being able, God forbid we should ever experience what she did, 
But what is our ability to, to rise should the words come our way or we be tempted to retaliate in like way? I'm going to end with this. I've used references to this film often, and if you haven't seen it yet, that's your fault. <laughs> but Babette's Feast is about many things. But it's mostly about a French woman who is fleeing war, fleeing poverty. She's got nowhere else to go, and a friend has sent her to this fishing village in Denmark that they, they know will welcome her. And, and they do. They welcome her. But she's got nothing. All she can do is cook. And she says, I, I, will, I will make your meals. And she does that for 15 years. 15 years. She just cooks for them. And, and what she does is she learns the recipes from this fishing community, which it's, I've never had lutefisk. I don't think I ever want to have lutefisk. But there it is. And, and they teach her how to make that. And she looks at it like, whatever floats your boat, family. And so she makes that. Well, she does it for 15 years without warning. And, and often Babette notices that the community, all of it, notwithstanding being a Lutheran community that loves each other in Jesus, they awfully get caught up in quarrels and squabbles, and they kind of like don't like each other very much, even though they're part of the same community. And she notes that. She even calls them out on it. Fifteen years into her tenure with them, um, she had played in France every year a lottery. Apparently, you could renew the cost of your lottery ticket every year. Well, one year, she hits it big, and she won 10,000 francs, which I looked it up in 2022 dollars. That's 60,000 bucks. She won 60,000 bucks, and she says, I'd like to go back to Paris. And they think, of course, we'll never, we, we love you, thank you, goodbye. And they think they're never going to see her again. Uh, two weeks later, she shows up with boats and boats of supplies. And she comes in to the family and the visit, and, and, and she says, I, I would like to prepare a meal for you. And I want to just show you a, a, a short two-minute mashup of her telling the community, that she'd like to make them a French meal. And then after you see that, you're going to see the moment in which these two daughters come in there to thank her for the wondrousness of the meal and what she reveals to them. Ja, we live in France, mesdames. In France, mesdames. In France, mesdames. Det var en meget god middag. De synes virkelig alle sammen, at det var en god middag. Jeg var engang køkkenchef på Café Anglais. Vi var alle sammen huske denne aften, når du rejste tilbage til Paris. Jeg rejser ikke til Paris. Rejser du ikke til Paris? Ja, jeg har ikke noget at vende til, Bertil. Alle er de borte. Og jeg har ikke en penge. 
Ingen penge. Vi har hun til 10.000 frank. Giver du det? 10.000 frank. Il me da tel tol au café anglais. Koste 10.000 frank. Kære Babette, du skulle da ikke have givet alt, hvad du ejede ud for vores skyld. Det var ikke alene for dig skyld. Så bliver du altså fattig nu hele dit liv. En kunstner er aldrig fattig. I just had the privilege in the first hour to talk with some of your students about what are we doing when we do this? What are we supposed to think of when we come forward? I think we're supposed to think of that in this sense. You saw bread, you saw wine, and you saw one who served a meal that gave everything they had for the good of those who dined. And in the backstory of that story is about a bunch of people that couldn't get along that through the meal came to reconcile them to themselves as it reconciled them to the one who had made them the meal. That's, that's what the Lord's table is. That's where we find the strength to recognize the potency of our words, the dignity of one another, and the priority of reconciliation. That's what we need. We need one who demonstrated everything and gave everything, even to his own life, to the last drop of blood, that we might be so humbled and consoled as to set aside the murderous thoughts that lead to something worse. This is why we come to the table. This is how we find what's a life's worth. Let's pray. Father, we are then led to ask, with whom might we be at odds, even if somebody in this room or with somebody elsewhere? And I would pray that you would give us the strength to seek out what we can do insofar as it depends on us uh, to walk in truth and in love, even through pain, even if we don't always agree with where we stand with somebody, but at least we can agree that we share a dignity. And I pray now as we come to this table that you would help us to see you and one another as you see us. We praise you, sir, in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we come, we should be honest with him who has set the table. And so we're going to take a moment to publicly confess our sin and then to be reminded of a pardon that this table points us to and is meant to confirm to our hearts. So I wonder if you would join me in this public confession of faith, of sin. <laughs> you have made us for yourself and shown us the highest compliment of making us in your own image. But we so easily forget that First about ourselves, and then about others. Thoughts become words, words become actions, until we have made a mockery of your compliment and a mess of our relationships. We need your pardon. We also need your vision of how you see us in your Son, so that we might see one another as far more than what our angry moments obscure. Take a moment and... Confess what you need to.
Hear this. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. There, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of